Hey, listeners, you are about to hear a special kind of bonus-ish episode of Galaxy where we're going to talk about our thoughts on the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, The Measure of a Man. So we hope you enjoy that. But before we do that, we want to just let you know about a couple things. First off, the audio for this episode is, uh, on my end, problematic again, just like it was for the last episode where my audio didn't sound all that great. So just as a reminder, that's still an issue. So to prepare you for that, um, my apologies. But also, we do have another um, much more significant announcement to give to you today. And that would be that we've now kind of established a hard, not end date, but um, I guess you could say end game for the podcast. And it's a little bit sooner than probably any of us anticipated, probably sooner than you anticipated as well. Different things are going on that we want to talk about that we're not really going to have the time to keep going with Galaxy, right? Yes. We have had so much fun doing this podcast with you, Jason, and interacting with listeners and reading Asimov, but uh, it just seems like a good time in our lives to take a step back. On my side of things, I have started to feel increasingly to feeling that it's important for me to be exercising my skills that I've developed and and passion for podcasting in a way that's a little bit more ministerial in nature. If you'll recall, um, Stephanie and I are both students in seminary. I'm also an ordained minister, and I'm just finding that I'm feeling called to exercise what I have toward those things. And so this is an opportunity cost issue because if I'm doing that and I really feel like it's important that I do, then that means that the time for Galaxy, the the time available for it is not really going to be present. So that's one that's one factor in all of this. And Jacob and I are um, transitioning into parenthood. Our baby is due in just four weeks. So we're finding that we got to take a step back from a couple of things and slow down. and. Um, just be really ready for this next step for our family. And the journey isn't really over yet either, technically. I mean, we are not through releasing episodes. In fact, we're doing our Measure of a Man episode because we're going to follow up our talk about foundation with kind of a run-through suite of episodes on Caves of Steel. It, we're we're letting you know now that we're going to be finishing up with Galaxy at some point here, but we do have a string of episodes left before that happens. So we really hope you enjoy this uh, this episode of Measure of Man, and we really hope you enjoy the next book, Case of Steel, with us as we say goodbye. Yes, indeed. And now, on with the episode. Welcome to Galaxy. I'm Stephanie Yunker. I'm Jacob Yunker. And I'm Jason Stark. This is a podcast where we talk about the sci-fi novels and stories of Isaac Asimov, one of the greatest sci-fi authors of all time. And uh, But this time, we're actually doing something a little different, aren't we? Yeah, we should put a little record scratch in there. And we're going to talk about Star Trek The Next Generation. Why? Why are we talking about Star Trek The Next Generation, Stephanie? Okay. First of all, because 
we're all giant nerds, which is obvious because we're doing this podcast. Secondly, <laughs> because there's this really interesting character in Star Trek The Next Generation. His name is Data, and he is an Asim- Asimovian android. He has a positronic brain, and even in the show, they reference Asimov's <laughs> ideas as what inspires the creator, this android. Absolutely. And there is one episode where they focus in on Data and asking the question of, is Data a person? So we're going to talk about that. Yeah. After all of the discussions that we had through the course of talking about iRobot, Stephanie thought it would be a great idea to talk about the measure of a man. Measure of a man is a very, very important episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Data is officially recognized by Starfleet as having rights that a human being would have and having freedom of action, freedom to choose his path. So I guess I think what we should talk about is, you know, what is at the heart of this episode and how does that message measure up, no pun intended, against our thoughts uh, on iRobot thus far and robotic personhood? So normally when we're talking about an Asimov novel, we break it into various bits that each episode covers and we give a plot synopsis of that section to orient the listener. And we we do want to cover the synopsis, but I don't think we're going to do the kind of um, dramatic telling of that synopsis this time around. We're going to be super brief with this. It's a pretty short episode, and I think we can all jump in on telling the story of what's happening here. So let's just kind of cover the ground real briefly, and then we'll talk about some specific moments in the episode. Okay, so basically what happens is another Star Trek officer comes on board the Enterprise where Data is uh, Lieutenant Commander. Um, First of all, orders the transfer of Data into his control and then says, essentially, I'm going to disassemble Data and attempt to replicate him and make like an army of androids. Yeah, Commander Maddox has a prior history with Data, was the the officer, the sole officer to object to Data's entry into Starfleet on the grounds that he wasn't sentient. And so we didn't know about him until now in the series, but now he's back in Data's life and wants to experiment on him. And of course, uh, Picard and Riker are very uncomfortable with this, and Picard moves to block the transfer, is unable to do so, and Data is forced to resign from Starfleet. And Commander Commander Maddox uh, attempts to block that as well. So we get this court case in this question of, can Data resign because he has choices? Or is Data the property of Starfleet? And there's this mention of, would you allow a computer to refuse a refit? Right. So... And so um, in, in this trial, as it comes, as it forms up, Captain Picard has to act as defense because he is like the highest ranking officer on board the ship. I think that's how it goes. And Commander Riker, being the second highest in command officer on the ship, has to act as prosecutor for the case, which he's very resistant to doing because Data is his friend. But if he doesn't, then the JAG officer that is at the starbase that they're at is forced to just say, well, it's, it doesn't matter. Then data has to go with commander Maddox. So Riker is forced to 
argue against his own friend, Data, in order that the trial can actually go on and Data have a shot at, at not going with Maddox. So a trial ensues. There's lots of back and forth. Um, it seems dramatically that Data is going to be declared property of Starfleet. And then Picard has this great defense of him. And we get this very satisfying, no, Data is a person. He gets to make his own choices. And um, a really sweet moment at the end where Data and Commander Riker get to talk a little bit and kind of resolve the tension that's between them. Synopsis complete. Yeah. Time nice record, four minutes. All right. <laughs> All right. You guys didn't mention the poker game at the beginning, which I think is really important, but whatever. That's well, what we're going to talk about now. Yeah, oh, so, so now we're going to talk about some of the, I think, important moments in the path of this, the, this, the script, the teleplay for this episode that kind of make the episode what it is. And the first one is that poker game at the beginning, kind of like the prologue of the episode. That lovely, lovely, awkward episode. It's a fun scene to watch if you've ever played Five Card Stud. With, with In Five Card Stud, it's pretty interesting because you get to bet on everyone else's hand, kind of, um, because you can see most of their hand. It's uh, it's face up on the on the table, except one single card. One single card is known only by that player. Um, now... Of course, this is where we open up and Data's like, oh man, I've got all the computational prowess and you guys are just, you're going you're gonna to lose. This is going to be fun for me. Um, and of course, Commander Riker <laughs> is the one who's like, well, I'm going to play uh, the one part of this game that a computer can't, which is the bluff game. And if you've ever played Five Card Stud, and if you've ever watched this episode, you know that Commander Riker has nothing no matter what. Like, like when you see his four cards, there's no fifth card that would give him anything at all. He's already lost, um, but he just kept betting and he just kept bluffing and he just kept bluffing. And I mean, Data's sitting there with like three queens and an ace. Like there's nothing, there's no hand that Commander Riker could have at all computationally that would beat Data. And I think Data knows that, except he can't, he, he just can't follow up the bluff. He he just can't understand the bluff. Right, and he loses, and outright. when he, he folds, and yeah, and when he loses, he's like, you know, you had nothing. How did this happen? You know, how did you how did you do that? And um, and Doctor Pulaski says, instinct data, instinct, and that is a telling moment because there are also a couple different um, there are a couple different tensions that are being created in that scene. One is 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 presented by Chief O'Brien who says like something about his, he wants to sit in a particular space, I think like a particular spot. He wants spot. to be the first dealer. Oh, okay. All right. Because, and data says, well, someone would call that superstition. And so data kind of presents reason, logic versus O'Brien's superstition. And the idea that, that sometimes you just kind of feel some way about something because it, because it feels right. And, and that's something as well that data doesn't quite get in his mind. Yeah. The, the intuition of a person is kind of important for the game of poker. Yeah. Uh, and also really hard to understand by any other means, except being a player in poker. And so the entirety of that scene to me really kind of presents this tension between the logic of things as presented by data and the human factor 
of poker, which which is represented by Commander Riker and his ability to bluff. And so this sets us up for a question of what is the human factor that is at stake here? And what is it that data might be kind of lacking when it comes to that human factor? It sets up the episode pretty well through presenting that question. Yeah, it definitely sets them apart as machine, which when you're starting the episode, you're like, oh yeah, it's, yeah, it's just what happens with data. He's a machine. It's, we, we all know this part. Um, you don't, you won't think that it'll become that high stakes later on. Mm, high I stakes. Also, I like that. <laughs> Thank you. I also think it's really interesting that Riker is able to bluff and data just folds and you're like, data, you could bluff too. And, and, and it's this interesting thing because later on, he kind of is going to accept the initial ruling of the court, which is that he's property. And Picard is like, no, Data, we're not going to accept this. We're going to fight it. And Data's like, oh, okay, I guess that makes sense. You know, he just doesn't have that kind of, let's push back against this. Let's find an interesting avenue if you see only two options, you know, Data sees two options and Picard is like, no, there is a third option and we're taking that one. Well, he's, um, he's definitely, he's definitely a, a good soldier. He's a good lieutenant. He takes orders. And he was told that this was going to happen. That's that. He needed the permission of his commanding officer to, to be himself. Yeah, but he could bluff. I think he le- learns that in later seasons, but yeah. not in this episode. Let's talk a little bit about Commander Maddox's treatment of data, because it's a very consistent theme that is raised by Maddox's character about something that up until now in TNG, it's been taken for granted that data is a person and is a he and is more than just a machine. But Commander Maddox's arrival on the Enterprise, it just it throws the viewer for a loop because he totally depersonalizes data in so many ways. Like he doesn't really directly address him that much. Like he'd much rather talk to the person next to data rather than direct conversation. Um, He just kind of assumes data's transfer and cooperation with what he's doing. He enters data's quarters without permission and just kind of treats him like, you know, just a machine where, you know, it doesn't matter if he has personal space. So yeah, and he doesn't yeah. call data a him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At all. I think except for once at the very, very, very end of the episode. There's a lot of depersonalizing going on. Mm-hmm. Data's an it. Stephanie, you mentioned in the synopsis that moment where Maddox offers that argument. Would you permit the enterprise computer to refuse a refit? And that is the whole kind of crux convincing little bit that convinces the JAG officer that there's really something to Maddox's demands and that this trial has to happen ultimately. I find that kind of interesting, but I want to get your take on it. How did you feel about the logic of that? Before I kind of get there, I definitely want to say uh, in some ways I related to data, kind of the depersonalizing of data really, really bothers me. First of all, because I'm emotionally attached, because I think he's hilarious. And second of all, because um, I go to seminary, so there are a lot of men around me, 
And I've met a lot of them who are just kind of stuck in their heads, um, who, who act a little bit like data. Um, and on, in certain occasions, I have been the one in the room who gets a little depersonalized. So Jacob and I went to buy a car a couple years ago. And oh, when yeah. we pulled up, I said to Jacob, Jacob, you realize that this salesperson's going to come out. It's going to shake your hand. It is not going to shake my hand. Watch. And sure enough, salesperson comes out, shakes Jacob's hand, doesn't make eye contact with me, and kind of addresses Jacob the whole time. And Jacob is furious. And I'm like, yeah, oh, this boy. happens. We're at a car dealership. What do you want? I want equality. <laughs> I want my wife to have a valid point in how we spend so much of our money. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it it bothers me a little bit. You get a little... And I think that's ultimately where they go with this episode. Yes, they... Um... I find it to be very effective as a writing tool in the episode like it's extremely off-putting again because we have a relationship with data that if you've been watching the series from the beginning i say that in quotes i guess a relationship with data but a connection to the character like you would have connection to the other characters and so it's it's just jarring for someone to come along and basically treat him like he's just a mechanism. Yeah, and actually back to your original point about the difference between data and, you know, the onboard computer. Data makes choices on its own that are so much different from the way that the computer makes choices. And the computer does make choices because they say, you know, make the holodeck kind of like 1920s America. And the computer's like, all right, well, here's an amalgamation of all those things. But... Data is so much more individualistic and personalized and well and data himself yeah. seeks out relationship. I don't you no no computer in Star Trek does yeah. that except data. Like data wants to know more about Jordy and Ensign Crusher and Picard. He like he'll ask them questions about themselves. He wants he wants a relationship. So there's there's a lot going on there makes it hard for me to see him put on trial. Yeah, and as far as the emotional attachment thing goes, I think there is a little bit of evidence for Data's personhood in the emotional attachment because, you know, a human being will get attached to, like, a Roomba or to the computer, especially if the computer has a voice, you get attached. And you want to be polite to her. But, you know, listen to me calling the computer a her. But there's more attachment to Data, if that makes sense. So the fact that there's there's something in us that is responding more to data in his shape and in his form and the way he presents himself than the way that we respond to, say, the onboard computer. I think there's something in that. Like our instincts can be good. I think the whole comparison of data to the ship's computer is a flawed premise from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because the enterprise computer is not capable. It is not programmed with the ability to refuse things. I mean, that's the that's the plain and simple fact is that it's Ooh, kind yeah. of an apples to oranges situation. And I don't feel like Maddox's question really ought to have the weight that it ends up having in the episode. Like data's different. Yeah, the computer doesn't really self-advocate. Yeah, the computer doesn't really self-advocate and data can and wants to. And right. You know, maybe I overlook the, uh, maybe I was a little shallow when I'm saying like he's a good officer and, and he just wants to take orders. I think that was actually Data's way of being in despair 
um, because he doesn't feel emotions. But if he feels like there's no other options, he's just going to accept things as they are, even though they feel hopeless. You know, so maybe he was in a in in a human way, I would say, despair when he was when he didn't think there was any other option. Captain Picard came up and said, "No, we're fighting for you," because it's one thing to self advocate, which Data already did. He advocated for himself by saying, "No." Um, Captain, I think this is a bad idea to let me go with him. Um, I don't think I'll come back. I have a special place. Like, I'm unique. I, I give things to the universe that no one else can give. Um, I'm not replaceable, which those are all self-advocating terms. And that all gets kind of shot down. And then, I would, yeah, so I would say he probably goes into despair when he quote-unquote accepts his resi- the way things are going to go. But to have others advocate for you also is a part of being a part of a community, which is Star Trek and Enterprise. And it's great. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say that not only does the episode kind of hit on the idea of Data as a person in terms of Maddox and kind of like a negative sense, like Maddox is depersonalizing of Data. But the episode also does a pretty good job through the device of Data's belongings. And how each of his belongings kind of means something to him that connects him to other characters, that connects him into the into the narrative universe. There's the hologram of Tasha Yar and his medals and the book that the captain gave to him. These things kind of represent something that makes him more than just than just circuitry and hardware. He has he has a past and he has a history and he has a story to tell. Yeah, he has a he is aware of a continued thread of narrative that is data. And like you said, Jacob, when he talks about his uniqueness and something that he offers, he also couches that in the language of a story of his life because he is the unique creation of Dr. Sung who constructed him. And in the words that he uses, I think he says, "I must protect his dream." That's that's something that a piece of hardware doesn't just say. That says something very deep about him. And not only that, but when the captain says, hey, I'll defend you, but just so you know, if you feel more comfortable with somebody else defending you, I I would understand that. And Data says, Captain, I have complete confidence in your ability to represent my interests. And that was a profound moment for me, not just because of the connection, that moment between Data and the captain, but the fact that Data is expressing he has interests and he has confidence. And these are things that are that are just so deep when compared to something that's just a machine. Well, and he values things, which is so interesting. Like, and he desires things. He desires to be more human, which is why he has this um, Shakespeare text that Picard gave him. And, you know, it's always interesting when they read or perform Shakespeare in Star Trek, especially in The Next Generation. Because out comes this like line of Shakespeare that kind of sums up the episode. It gives you the thesis statement. Right. I think it's really interesting to talk about Data. I think it's also interesting to talk about the other characters in this episode too and what they represent. So like, obviously Maddox is the antagonist. Um, and I love how they portray Maddox because he's not an evil guy. He's He is definitely the antagonist. He is definitely trying to bar data from going further he's definitely trying to change things for the worse but like all of his intentions are to provide better resources 
for all of Starfleet and and be a better cybernetics uh, doctor. And he want and he just he just wants to be better, and he wants to help other people be better. There's one scene in the it's in the courtroom. It's a lot later on, but he talks about can you imagine how much good can come from date hundreds thousands of datas on all these other uh, ships doing all the things that we can't. And I'm like, you know, that's a good point. Like data can do so much that the rest of the ship just can't. He, he's a walking, he's a walking multi-tool, but not even like a multi-tool because a multi-tool is weak because every tool is only so small, but he can do everything so strongly. Like he can, he can lift just about anything. He can dodge anything. He's always safe. And it's um, a good point that he raises. I, I feel like what makes him the antagonist is that while he's concerned for bettering Starfleet, bettering humanity, the one person, one entity that he is not interested in bettering and interested in the welfare of is data. Is data. You know, he's talking about all the good that can come and all the growth that could come uh, to Starfleet through through producing more androids in this manner, where We've already kind of hit upon it a little bit, but Data is seeking to grow. He is seeking to learn and grow beyond his programming himself. And so he can't do that if he's disassembled and and reduced to nothing. So Maddox, you're right. He does have these, at base, noble intentions, and yet... The, and is still he, the antagonist. And, but he's the antagonist, and he and I believe that's because... He has these noble intentions in a very, with a, a very misguided application. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I like him so much as an antagonist because I think it's because we can relate to him. I'm I'm kind of bored of antagonists that are like, oh, that's just the bad guy. I like the antagonists that I know that if I were in the wrong situation or the right situation, I could be that one. You know? This is actually this is an interesting conversation. Okay, so this is my. These are the antagonists that I, the type of antagonists I hate the most. And I honest, they're, they're the ones that use logic and they use philosophy to justify things that just feel wrong. So, and so often you get people who are like, you know, oh, I can kind of see the point there. I think I'm going to kind of move a little bit this way. And it takes the hero to make this correct philosophical argument to bring you back to what is ultimately the correct answer, which is what you kind of felt was going to be the correct answer all along. So honestly, I would put um, Thanos from, from the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the same category because he uses a terrible, first of all, Thanos's logic is horrible, like any any first semester philosophy student could tear him apart but but that's physically? the part uh, not physically his his philosophy is terrible oh okay got it. yeah he he doesn't follow any of the logic rules yeah but he uses this this logic and this philosophy so i don't know it just makes me furious so what i want to say about that is when you wrestle with philosophy when people's lives are at stake that is a dangerous thing Oh, yes. It's always a dangerous thing. And a little bit with the judge, I'm kind of like, all right, maybe this had to happen. 
to ensure Data's livelihood, to ensure that Data's going to continue to live and others like him. Um, But at the same time, I'm like, you know, how dare we argue when we have to argue, but how dare we? talk about the second half of this episode which consists of the trial the trial itself um one one thing that struck me while we were talking is the the judge says we have to we have to reverse revert back to these adversarial um systems to find the truth of matters and when you think of the court scene as like hey we're all wrestling with these big old questions and we're all wrestling with philosophy and we're all wrestling with saints it's kind of like I think it's a good metaphor for how dramatic it can be inside of a person's life when we deal with similar issues and worldview rewriting and we're rewriting narratives in our own selves. Um, I love I love the whole court scene, <laughs> and um, it doesn't go positively at all in the beginning. Riker is up first for his prosecution, and he's already been told by the JAG officer that he has to actually be genuine in this. He can't just do his prosecution half-heartedly. He actually has to try to make it so that Data has to go with Commander Maddox. And this is a big struggle for him because Data is his friend. But he finds something that is that has been secret from just about everybody else on the show, except for Dr. Crusher, because in the episode with Data's twin brother, Lore, the whole off-switch that Data has is kind of a device of, no pun intended, it's a device of the episode that kind of pushes it forward. But now Riker knows about it, and soon everybody knows about it, because not only does he demonstrate that Data can, you know, can have his arm taken off or something, but also that he can just be shut off like any like any machine. And so that's kind of a gut-wrenching sort of scene when you think about their relationship. At the same time, I'm like, well, what does this actually prove? Like, the fact that you can take off his arms, like, big deal, you know? Is it really that... How how good of a prosecution is this? Well, I like... I like that he was asked, first of all, to do his best. Because at any point in our lives, if I'm, if I'm wrestling with an old narrative inside my own heart, if I don't address it honestly, like Riker was asked to, then I'm not going to get anywhere at the end of it. I'm just going to end up with cheap and bad logic, like Dr. Maddox did. I think it's probably the best prosecution you can make because at the end of the at the end of the day it's not a science question we're asking so all you can do to try and push up against philosophy is is point out that these things are within like if I can manage and and control within my own hands this being they're not outside of my control and therefore they're not outside of my rights. They're within my rights. So data's within my rights and therefore my property. I think it was the best possible push. I think it was still wrong and I think Riker knew it was wrong, but I, it was the best possible refute, refutation he could have made. Yeah, to try to 
category shift the discussion from a philosophical discussion to a Manage- scientific management discussion. Management of power kind of thing, yeah. Okay. Speaking of management of power, there's a kind of intermission here between the first half of the trial and the second half of the trial that takes place in 10 forward. And um, let's let's bring that in now, because I, I consider it to be probably the second best scene of the episode, save for the scene that's right after it. Let's mm-hmm. talk about Guinan's conversation with Picard. I so just want to point out that it is so poignant that it is Whoopi Goldberg giving those lines right. about slavery. Mm-hmm. It actually makes me cry every time I hear it. <laughs> and it, and she just is so subtly like, all worlds have had these throwaway people. Don't let it happen to another race. You can send the androids to do the work that nobody else wants to do. And you don't, she says, it, she says, you don't have to think about their welfare. You don't have to think about how they feel. Whole generations of disposable people. Yes, and she just, the way that she says property is like, that right there is just this, like, crux moment in the I love the way that she, I feel like she's kind of saying things, knowing that she's saying them, but saying them between the lines, knowing Mm -hmm. it. Because Picard says, you're talking about slavery. And she just kind of pauses, you know, and she's not saying anything. And then she turns her head just a little bit to the side and says, well, I think that's a little harsh. And, and Picard is like, no, no, it's not harsh at all. It's exactly what we're talking about. And it's really a, a super, super important moment because that's the moment for Picard where he goes from kind of despair because of how bad things are looking to realizing that there's a way forward in helping Data to not have to, to leave the ship. I really like how it's worded, how Picard says, we are talking about slavery. slavery. We just keep hiding it behind this easy euphemism of rights and property. Mm-hmm. And in this episode, we're talking about rights and property being the easy euphemism. But how many times in our lives have we used easy euphemisms? No, it's just the easiest way to do things. It's the most economical or it's just politics or it's just blah, blah, blah. It's an easy euphemism for not wrestling with the deep, hard parts of ourselves and others. I think Picard's defense is really the scene that makes me think the most about the conversations we've had already in iRobot. Mm-hmm. There's so much that's going on there that touches on so many aspects of what we talked about. And the first major thing has to do with Picard's very opening statements where he says, data is a machine we don't, you know, we all agree on that data is a machine, but it's not relevant because human beings are machines, but of a different type. Data was created by a human being. We all agree with that. Uh, you know, there's no, no disagreement there, but that's not relevant because children are created through the building blocks of the DNA of their parents. Are they property? I recall when we were talking about iRobot. We were talking about, I don't know, this, this might have ended up getting cut from the episode, but I remember we were talking about, well, what if a robot were to build another robot? Is that the same as reproduction, like in the human sense? And, and the other part of it is this distinction between 
between androids as machines and human beings as biomechanical machines. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are when he, when he brings these distinctions up. Do you find them to be valid, or do you think they're faulty? Um, I think, I think his other arguments are a little bit more convincing. Um, and, th- and that's mostly because I want to highly value human, human beings and human bodies, especially. And that's something that we kind of stray away from post-enlightenment is valuing human bodies. So we have this idea, a Greek idea of, um, of the mind being really important and the body is less important. And I want to push back against that. So I would push back a little bit on the idea of humans being machines as well as making a direct connection between the way that data is created and the way that human life is created because there's something special. There's something different about the way that human life is created. And they do kind of mention, does data have a soul later Later in the episode, and I think we'll get to it later in our conversation. But I just there's something there's something about human bodies and human life and and human creation that is different and special. That doesn't mean that I disagree with Picard's uh, conclusions. I would tend to agree with his conclusion actually, but I just I I think those direct connections can be philosophically dangerous. Also, I I think. Picard's most poignant points aren't the points that he makes like, hey, check out data's data's meeting all your criteria. It's the, I think the point he's making is we don't know what makes a man, yeah. what makes a human. We don't know. I mean, data hits two of your three criteria. What if he has consciousness even to the slightest degree? Doesn't that make him human? Do you know? Do you know? And there's this point where he turns around even to Riker and to the judge. Do you know what make, do you know what would happen then? And I think the point he's making is we, we are not in a place to judge what makes us human. I, I think is the point he's trying to make. I don't think we have a say in who is and who isn't gets to be technically sentient and alive. Um, and I, I think that's very humble of him. Uh, to bring that up, and I think the judge uh, also responds quite humbly. <laughs> yeah, that actually brings to mind my absolute favorite line of this episode, which is when Picard says, um, "Starfleet was created to seek out new life. Well, there it sits." And I just I love the delivery of the line. I love the way that that he says it, and mm-hmm. it's just such a good moment of. We can't necessarily define life, and it's right here in front of us, and we've got to deal with it in a way that is good. And we've and got honorable. to deal with it in a way that's good. Yes. That, good that's a good way to say that, Stephanie. <laughs> and so Picard saves the day, and Data gets to stay on the Enterprise, and he's also recognized as having rights officially by Starfleet, which is kind of interesting because you would have thought that maybe they would have handled this by now. But this is the episode where it gets handled. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is. Well, I like that they wait so long because there sometimes there are really big questions that we actually don't fully address until later on anyway. Um, like, like I've recently had a conversation with someone I work with about racism 
and he was uh, 45, 46 years old. He had seen it lots of times, and he just never attributed it to race. Like, he's a white man, and he has lots of black family and friends. He's just amongst the community. And he's he has seen them mistreated in several different ways and to several different degrees. Um, but he has just never actually sat down and asked the question, wait, does this mean racism is a thing? Until, you know, he was talking with me at 46 years old as a white guy. I, a white guy, told another white guy to go talk to his black friends about if this is a thing or not. And it wasn't until he was 46 where his friends looked him in the face and went, hey, this still is a thing and it still hurts us. So I like that, you know, you know, we can give him some space for dealing with data as a person later on because we all have our own timing for things. And it just goes to show how much you assume until it comes up and you have to clarify. And that tends to happen with the law as well. Yeah. In light of all of this discussion about measure of man and in light of how measure of man handles the question of data, how do you think this informs all of the discussions that we had about robotic personhood when it came to iRobot? Hmm. I think relationship is more important now. Now that we've now that we've seen data do it, I think relationship is something I, w- I will definitely hold higher in books we see read in the in the future because data. It my heart was totally ripped when data gets shut off in the courtroom and that's because data has sought out intentional relationship with Riker and Riker has sought out intentional relationship with data they both ask questions of each other to learn for no other reason than to learn more about each other it's why they were the two playing poker at the beginning of the episode they have a relationship that is special that no one else could have and I always look at Data and Jordy. Jordy's a fantastic character. And those two are like a dynamic duo. They're, they're buddies, they're bros. And it's because they have, like Data and Jordy have one relationship that Data and Riker do not because they're all very unique and special. Um, and it's that relationship that drives home to me that that sentience and that community is very important. Whereas in iRobot, the robots do start out as being presented as as exclusively machines that are designed to do only the will of the human beings around them that tell them to do something. They're of a much different nature than data. I mean, the positronic brain aside, I mean, one important distinction is that data is not programmed with the three laws of robotics. I mean, the whole fact of that he is capable of refusing something and not even something that is just an endangering of human life, like the like the first law would be a control on refusal. D- the fact that Data can actually choose not to do something that someone tells him to do, it does mean that we're dealing with something that's quite different here. But at any rate, iRobot does have some stories in which we do have to start thinking about the the fragility of, I guess, you can't really, I don't know if you can call it a psyche if it's in a robot, but the fragility of the robots in terms of their, of their brains and how the wrong moves and the wrong circumstances can kind of set them off and how there needs to be some care. I mean, that's why there's a robo psychologist that, that deals with them. 
Um, we're dealing with very different creatures when we're talking about Data and Star Trek and the robots that we see in Isaac Asimov's universe. Yeah, Data feels more developed. And yet, we are still... We came across this question a few different times about asking whether or not, for example, Robbie is a, is a person. Or we could think about it in terms of Nestor 10. Or in terms of, oh, what was that mind-reading robot's name? Oh, the mind-reading one. Um, oh, Herbie, that's right. Herbie. Um, and the, the, the question, we, it still came up. Are these, are these persons that we're dealing with? And if so, how ought they to be treated? There's a lot of interesting carryover from what we watch in Measure of a Man and how Asimov deals with questions of robotics and questions of humanity. Yeah, given what we've kind of watched and talked about with Measure of a Man, I, I think my position remains the same, that Robbie is not necessarily a person. He doesn't necessarily have free will and some of those qualities that I would say a person has. Um, I might say that he's alive. I think I would be comfortable mm. with that. Um, but I also would retain my position that at the end of the book, I, the, oh, I don't remember his name, but the mayor dude who was a, a robot. Or Stephen Byerly. Yes. Byerly might be a person. I think Ooh. when it gets that far, I, I think I'd retain that sort of distinction. Um, but I also, given a measure of a man, would have have this caution that I'm going to hold on to, which is to be really, really careful when proposing to take away the right to be called a person for something that obviously has free will. So if my instincts were to say, yeah, I think this thing might be alive. I'm not really sure. You better tread lightly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think on the one hand, something that sets data apart is the fact and I think I already mentioned it once, but the fact that he seeks to grow beyond his original programming. Yes. And that's something that we don't see with your average three laws robot from Asimov's universe. Yeah. And I think we've mentioned it before, you know, but the three laws are so constraining upon an Asimovian robot that it really kind of takes something away versus with data. He has the freedom of action that that sets him apart. In the light of the Measure of a Man episode, I think I'm going to, I think I'm, I'm going to be kind of more critical of how we spoke about the criterion of what makes a human. I think I want to be more humble in saying I don't know all of the criterion. I know that in the episode they had three that was all very knowledge-based, head-based kind of stuff, consciousness, intelligence, self-awareness. There's, there's probably like 7,000 more, honestly. Right. Um, so um, I think I'm going to be a little bit more cautious with just outright saying, here's my criteria for what makes a sentient being, which I thought, I think when we first recorded iRobot, I was really just gung-ho about, but I think I want to be more cautious in the future. Interesting. The last thing I want to say, though, is that it's it's a very interesting discussion to have because we are dealing with fictional entities and characters who we care about because because TV works that way and it makes you care about things and literature makes you care about things that are just absolutely fictional. And so, you know, I get that we're talking about these things when they're not actually true to life. We don't have true to life androids about whom we have to ask this sort of thing. It's almost like, I think maybe one, one weak spot I see 
is that like the answer to the question when we watch Measure of a Man, does data have rights? I almost feel like it's a little too easy for the viewer because we have already experienced data for like a season and a half at this point as someone who has rights and who has agency and choice. And it's almost like it's almost like it's kind of begging the question a little bit because we know enough about data that that for us the answer is pretty clear. I think yes, he has rights is the end of the episode. That's not the important part. I think she says, um, also, does he have a soul? I don't know. But he should have the right to go figure that out. Right. I think that's the point, is we have to figure out the more deep parts of what makes us sentient and soul-based. And I, I think the point is, we, we are not done figuring out what we take for granted. Like right. Maddox took for granted sentience. And we should not ever take that for granted. We should be wrestling with this. But I think something else that's occurring to me has to do with some of the conversations that were started on social media when it came to ideas of robotic personhood. And the question was, I'll just, I'll just say that like some people were very, I don't want to say cynical about the idea of whether robots should have rights. I mean, I'm not going to say cynical, but some people kind of brought up the valid point of like, you know, if you just program the robots to love whatever they do and whatever they're supposed to do in their function, then really aren't you giving them something that is fulfilling to them in the end? Like if you just program them in a way where you don't give them all these things, then if you don't give them the capacity to regret or the capacity to resent or things like that, what's the big deal? And so that kind of that kind of resonated with me. It's almost like that's kind of why I was saying it's almost like data circumstantially is kind of begging the question because they've written him with free will. They've written him with agency and choice. And it's like, why not just make robots or androids that are different from that? And then you can kind of avoid the problem altogether. That is actually where I you could make a connection between human procreation and creating an android, which is... Perhaps there is just an ineffable quality about creating an android where it's not necessarily the programming that determines that. If you're going to argue that Data has a soul, there's going to be part of him that wasn't just what... that he, He's going to be more than the sum of his parts. And I think Data is written to be more than the sum of his parts. Whereas a robot in Asimov's novels tend to be written to be the sum of their parts but if they start pushing that boundaries you, you gotta ask the question yeah i think i think jason you've just found the point where the analogy breaks down because the point of androids and the point of robots in the end is to ask really big questions questions like what makes humans more human or less human and what makes us better or worse and who gives us the right to choose or do we choose I think at some point you're going to find that there's going to be a breakdown because all analogies break down at some point because that's not the point of an analogy. The point of an analogy is to make you ask questions and grow up. So I think I think some of those questions you're asking, Jason, are more like, well, you found where the analogy breaks down. Right. Um, unless, of course, in a couple hundred years, people actually do build androids, in which case there's no longer a breakdown. It's just a serious question. 
Yeah, that's an excellent point. I suppose that was me um, kind of exercising my nerdness in the same way that someone would talk about, uh, well, warp speed doesn't really work that way, or hyperspace doesn't really work that way. It's like, uh, remember, it is fiction. So yeah. not to not to get too caught up in the trappings, but to remember what the message is. Yeah. So, thanks, Jacob. I needed that reminder. Here for you. Just a little grounding. <laughs> Well, I think that kind of sums up our thoughts on this. Do you have any other things that you want to add? Go watch this episode and bring tissues with you, especially for Whoopi Goldberg's performance. And oh my gosh. It is masterfully acted. Oh, I do. I do have a final thought. It is very important. I want to acknowledge what a great actor Brent Spiner is because he really has you convinced that he is an android and he has these moments where he does something human if data gets an emotion chip or something like that like there's an episode where data just laughs like a human would laugh and then he goes right back to being data and it's just it's masterfully done and to see a human being acting like he doesn't know how to be a human being like pretending to sneeze or pretending to laugh (laughs) or something like that it just it's really amazing to watch. He does a great job. How far they have really you gotten are a into cast the... of master actors? Jacob, how far have you gotten into the series now? Of the next generation? Yeah. We're on season three. We're getting to the end of season three, which oh. loving that. I, I, I know, I know. My near future is the Borg, and Jacob I'm Jacob doesn't for it. know about the Borg, you guys. He doesn't know. And he doesn't know why they're the most terrifying sci-fi villains. I have seen yeah. a glimpse. I'm ready. I've seen a glimpse yeah. of the Borg, and you're right. I'm kind of nervous, but everyone else is freaking out about it, and I don't know why. Oh, but you're in for a treat, because yes. that was that was the moment that saved TNG from cancellation, really. And really? Also, why? I mean, it was just... The show was on the ropes, ratings-wise, and they made a bold move uh, with the with the way that that episode was written and the cliffhanger aspect of it, and and so it really saved the show and it opened up into what is arguably the best season of TNG following this. Oh man, I'm so excited! So yeah, absolutely, you are in for a real treat, and uh, I'm so glad that you're getting into this show because I've enjoyed it since I was a little kid. And, um, and it's just, it's, it's got a special spot in my heart. So it has a special spot in my heart. My goodness. Yes. And the Borg are in that, you know, the most terrifying class of sci-fi villains. I'll make a list for you later after you know what the Borg do. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't like a good list of villains. Yeah. Anyway, I think we're, I think we're done wrapped up. I agree. So, um, we hope you've enjoyed this special kind of bonus episode that we've offered you today and if you want to share your thoughts with us on either measure of a man or the connection between star trek and asimov please feel free please please reach out to us and share your thoughts and there are several ways you can do that yeah you can email us at contact at galaxypodcast.com you can reach out to us on our facebook page at galaxy podcast And you can visit our website, galaxypodcast.com. There we have a lot that you can do. You can listen to all of our episodes. You can stream them for free. You can learn a little bit about us. And uh, you can also find links to subscribe to our podcast on a number of different podcast apps. 
uh, you can just click the subscribe badge that you see on the side of our landing page and it'll take you right to the app that you listen to so you can subscribe and not miss an episode. So we want to thank you for joining us. And until next time, I'm Jason Stark. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jacob Yunker. And this has been Galaxy. Galaxy.